Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Guys, we are closing our March uh, issue tomorrow, and I think... Sometime tomorrow or Friday, we will have up on our website Christine Rosen's piece on the passion for uh, decarceration and the ending of punishment in the United States and how this has become a signature part of the Democratic parties and the liberal agenda and what it might portend for this country. It's a fantastic piece. I commend it to you highly. We'll talk about it some more on the podcast once you get a chance to read it. Uh, and uh, we got a lot of other good stuff uh, in the issue, so we'll be we'll be laying that out for you as, as we go along. Yesterday, the impeachment trial uh, of Donald Trump kicked off in the Senate, and it was a slightly peculiar day because... Uh, Basically, what was being debated was what had already been voted on last week, which is whether or not it was constitutional to try Trump after he left office. There was already a vote on this in the Senate last week, 55-45, and then they had four hours of debate yesterday on the same question, why this was agreed to, why this was necessary in the negotiations between um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, is not clear to me, but there it was. So we got, essentially, in lieu of an opening statement, we got an opening statement. We got the House managers, Democratic House managers, presented their killer app, the video, a uh, horrifying video of what went on uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. A uh, very emotional presentation by by Jamie Raskin, the lead house manager, uh, a very, I thought, brilliant uh, constitutional lesson about why the proceedings were constitutional from a uh, member of Congress I had not heard of before, Jonah Goose from Colorado. Um, and uh, and then, of course, the uh, presentation of the Trump lawyers, which... Uh, I believe we're going to go down in the annals of inadvertently comic moments in American history, like when Monica Lewinsky's lawyer went on five TV shows simultaneously, and there's some other mo- ridiculous moments in you know uh, American uh, in American history. Um, I have a fun digression here because I watched every minute of it. So um, the goose actually did something that made me very happy, which was um, to make an appeal to the precedents established in English common law, which are antecedent to American constitutional law. Now, that's kind of out of favor among Democrats these days. Joe Biden very famously called English common law white man's culture in denigrating it, saying it was responsible for the legal establishments that we have that establish um, a certain evidentiary threshold to convict somebody of sexual assault, which is bad now if you're a social justice advocate. So this this appeal was very heartening to me. And then Bruce Castor gets up, one of Donald Trump's attorneys, and just goes, English common law, like, what's that? I mean, didn't we fight an American revolution so we're not be British, right? Up top, everybody. And it was very Joe, you know, lunch pail and kind of obnoxious. And then his his partner, um, Sean, I forget his first name. What's David. His name? Dave Sean. David. Um, makes, a, makes an appeal to English common law to, to justify his argument. So it was completely schizophrenic and very frustrating. But it is it is nice that we're having this discussion about 17th century precedent. Uh, Blackstone, you know, it's the first time that many Americans will have heard the name Blackstone. Uh, so we had some, we had some talk about Blackstone. Uh, you know, I, we can go on and on talking about whether or not it's constitutional to try a private citizen. He wasn't a private citizen when he was impeached. And therefore this whole conversation strikes me as being ridiculous. 
uh, part of the ridiculous aspect of this, despite the fact that there are, you know, important constitutional scholars on both sides who have taken both sides of the issue is the piece that was most cited by the people who want to argue that it's illegitimate to, you know, try Trump for uh, actions that he took while he was in office <laughs> is by Judge Luddig, uh, who then apparently in some conversation with somebody that was um, online in a podcast or something said, well, you know, he'd only really thought about this last week. And so he read a couple of things and then he said, nah, this, this can't be, this can't be right. Um, so it's like, really? I mean, that's how, where we're going with this. Like a Michael Luddick, oh, he's so, you know, what a great, legendary figure. Hasn't actually thought about this question and then sat down and wrote a an op-ed based on his, you know, relative ignorance of the, historical boundaries of the of the question and i i was amused also by the straussian and talmudic efforts to discern the meaning of the word the which we of course remember from it depends on the meaning of what the meaning of the word is is it's like it says the president so how can there be more than one president at the same time you can only try the president uh and I love that because, you know, it's it's fantastic to watch uh, people take the very meaning of original, take sort of originalism, which is let's try to figure out what what was meant when these documents were written and uh, and like take it to the most absurd, factitious and and uh, sophistic extremes um, when in fact... You don't need to debate the meaning of the word the because there there are the debates on the constitution are there in print down uh for everybody to read and they actually debated this very question of whether or not someone could or could not be tried uh you know out of office. So um so I I I I commend the fact that we have now returned to you know, ludicrous, sophistic reasoning as an effort to kind of, you know, uh, make a dodge and give people an out ramp away from a difficult vote by claiming that they don't need to really vote on this because the whole proceeding is illegitimate. Uh, but can we talk about uh, everyone was having great fun <clears throat> with um, with Bruce Caster's <clears throat> absolutely horrific presentation after you know two hours of the most serious heart-rending uh, logical pre you know fact-based presentation he got up and basically winged it for an hour uh, his partner Sean went on Sean Hattie last night and said he didn't really expect to speak yesterday we kind of mixed things up and so he spoke so you know I bet he'll be better later it's like well, didn't. didn't they even undermine, didn't he sort of acknowledge that they, on the fly, changed what they were going to say after they heard the how the impeachment manager saw it? Like, they heard the Democratic argument that they're like, oh, we got to change our change up our, our line of logic here. And they both struck me, that the Trump lawyers struck me as being like those kids in high school who have to do their presentation a day or two early. You know, like they thought they were going to present on Friday, but now on Tuesday, the teacher's like, nah, let, let's put you up there. And they were wild. They seemed wildly unprepared to answer any of the things that anyone, including those of us who are not legal scholars, have been talking about in terms of the impeachment questions and the constitutionality. They they just were not the uh, the, the sort of faux avuncular uh, demeanor that Castor had in particular just struck me as sort of, it, it was kind of insulting. <laughs> and we do know from reports uh, that Trump was not happy at all. He was very angry with how, how his lawyers were uh, presenting his case, evidently, according to some reports. Well, we that should, we surprises should, yeah. me. That really does surprise me because, well, Castor was kind of meandering and ponderous. But Sean did what we expected Trump to want to see, which was to just exude pathos and be very, you know, annoyed and frustrated and pound the table. I mean, it's the kind of thing you saw. So this is something of a digression, but Josh Mandel is Ohio Secretary of State. He's running for Senate to replace Rob Portman, and his announcement is. Watching this in sham impeachment has made my blood boil and motivated me to run. That's a lie. That's a, a silly lie. He's been running for a long time now, but he thinks that's what you need to hear because that's what the Trump wing of the party wants to hear, which is the dominant wing of the party. They want everybody to be mad, really mad, in a sense, especially for Donald Trump's besmirched honor 
And that's what Doug Schoen demonstrated up there. He was David, defending David his Schoen. aunt. David, David. Schoen. Yeah, other 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 showing. Um, he wanted he he demonstrated indignation on Donald Trump's behalf, which is what you think Donald Trump wants to see, but that's not what he wants to see. He doesn't want to be defended on the merits of the charges against him. He wants somebody to go up there and argue election fraud. That's what right. everybody in his his team resigned over. Presumably, no one's yeah. going to want to do that, but that's what he wants to see. He doesn't want anyone to defend him on the merits. He wants them to defend him on the substance of. The, of what led to the sacking of the Capitol. Well, you know, if he paid his bills, maybe they would make the argument that he wanted them to make. But Trump doesn't pay his lawyer's bills, so he so basically they're they're on their own. This notion that he you can get a report out of Trump's house that he's mad that his lawyers didn't do what he wanted them to do is astounding. Like, of course, they'll they'll do what he wants them to do. They're his lawyers and they're just doing it for his sake. And they didn't do it for whatever reason. He know perfectly well they weren't doing it. That's not what he was mad about. He was mad that, that Castor got bad reviews. He was mad that, you know, instead of coming across like Matlock or like, you know, Columbo or something, which was kind of his act. It's like, hey, we're just buddies here. I'm just uh, standing here talking like a regular person. My parents loved Everett Dirksen. I listened to an Everett Dirksen record. That's how much I respect the Senate. Do you ever hear Everett Dirksen's voice? I thought my head was going to come out of my ears. Like, you just watch two hours of footage of, you know, hundreds of Americans trying to destroy the U.S. Capitol. And then, you know, and then this guy stands up and starts talking about how his parents loved Everett Dirksen. Like, are you kidding me? Who the hell are you? And the answer is, he's nobody. He's some guy from, you know, from from nowhere, no nowheresville. I can't remember if he's the one who let Bill Cosby off the hook or if he's the one who defended Jeffrey Epstein. Or is it the other way around? Like, you know, this is really fantastic stuff. I said, I told you guys yesterday what I what I was reminded of was the SNL skit Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. Only the thing about the Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer is he's a really good lawyer, right? He's just like, I don't understand your system. I'm from another time when we didn't even, we we looked at the lights in the sky. But I do know that debenture reform is necessary if we are to deal with the cost-benefit analysis of our business's structures, right? That's unfrozen caveman lawyer is, I don't know what's going on, except I am really good at this. He was like the first half without the second half. And he's somebody's, talk about my cousin Vinny, he's somebody's cousin, I believe he's the cousin of somebody who helped Trump with the first impeachment, who was like, you know, what you should do hire my cousin. I mean, it's literally it came down to this. Yeah, because as Noah says, every lawyer that he wanted in the first place or every lawyer was like quit because they weren't going to they weren't going to humiliate themselves making a ludicrous, offensive and on its face, you know, wrong and illegitimate argument and castor said this is i think you're right noah castor said we're not going to argue the system worked said castor the right guy got elected yeah that's that's the big problem that's why trump didn't like it i mean and what's more if we could just share okay we're talking about it because it's reported who cares whether trump liked it or not like screw him who cares that's not his feelings about his stupid lawyers are the least important thing that's going on this week. What's important uh, this week? Uh, okay. Well, yeah. but but that goes to the point uh, that we were you know talking about earlier in the week about why they don't want a prolonged trial. Um, what this is really about is that apparently people really do care what what Trump thinks about it, and that the longer this goes on, um, the longer his specter hangs over everything. Well, and and I agree, and I think that 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 video was important and powerful, not only for for showing for Americans who haven't who didn't understand just how violent and terrifying and how quickly everything you know co- sort of collapsed in terms of security at the Capitol, but the timing, you know, what Trump was saying and talking and uh, about when the mob started to form and headed for the Capitol and the c- encouragement his words gave the mob, but also because if Trump wants to run again, if they don't actually bar him from from office, uh, 
that is the best campaign video against Trump I have ever seen. I mean, just seeing what he was willing to do after he lost an election and the violence that ensued as a result. That's if you're a Democrat who has to run against Trump in 20, you know, if you're Joe Biden, you just show that on an endless loop. It should be a a great video for Republicans, too, because if he were to run again for the Republican nomination and lose. Yes. The likelihood that there would be violence associated with it is pretty darn high. He's demonstrated a willingness to do it once. He's probably going to do it again because he's going to get off on this. I mean, there was there was the Republican video. Which, you know, if, I don't know if you, if you caught the Republican video, but they had a montage of Democrats saying in early 17 that they wanted Donald Trump to be impeached. Um, it didn't have the precise emotional, uh, emotional affect uh, or effect in part because they had to overlay dramatic Hans Zimmer music over it. Like it was one building crescendo of, uh, you know, cinematic um, music, if, you know, if you were to replace that with Benny Hill music, it would have had a very different effect. I suspect that they had to do that in order to make it as ominous as possible and not just the bleedings of a partisan political class saying whatever they wanted to say on MSNBC to rile up the audience. But that is that was sufficient, I suppose, for, for the Republicans in the audience today, yesterday. Well, I, I mean, we don't know what's sufficient. We're now talking about things on the margin here, right? So something did happen yesterday as a result of the two presentations, which is that one senator who voted uh, on the said that it was unconstitutional to proceed, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana, switched his vote. Uh, and the vote to proceed was uh, 56 to 44 rather than 55 to 45. Uh, he said he did so because the Republican presentation was so incompetent. But, I mean, let's just make the point that if over the course of this uh, proceeding, the number of Republican votes to uh, convict goes up one or two or three from the five that we expect will vote to convict, or at least four that we will expect to vote to convict, uh, that while the proceeding will not end with Trump you know, having been convicted and where, where, while it is unlikely as a result that the remedy of his uh, laying it out that he can no longer run for office will not be imposed, um, that will represent a success of a kind for a proceeding in which minds will have been changed. It's like one of these uh, intelligence squared debates where they measure, they ask people what they were going to, what they thought beforehand and then they listen to a debate, and at the end, they vote again, and they show what happens after listening to two arguments, two hours of arguments. So this is a little bit like that, and I'm not sure that what I'm laying out here might not happen. Something happened to, to Senator Cassidy in that room uh, to, to let him say, you know what, I want to cast a vote even if it's a protest vote, I want to cast a vote against the, you know, now he just won re-election, so he's safe, but he wanted to cast that vote. And I, I don't know what's going to go on here for. And, and what's more, that same attitude toward the Trump defense could deepen. Like, what, what are they going to get better? Who knows if they'll get better? Maybe they'll get worse. You know, I mean, the skills that are required to make sure that Bill Cosby doesn't get prosecuted are not necessarily the skills that are required to make a convincing case that uh, the Democratic case against Trump is without merit, which goes to more supple and interesting and complicated arguments about what speech is. Um, it is interesting to note that the that the default for this question of whether or not Trump incited or abetted or something like that, a riot uh, is a is a free speech uh, question here because uh, n- nobody denies that Trump has a right to free speech. The question is whether his behavior functions as a political high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, not, nobody not denies. Nobody, nobody is on under the impression that what happened on January sixth uh, would pa- would would pass the Brandenburg test to suggest that you're inciting violence. It, it, the, the bar for prosecuting incitement to violence is extremely high. It's almost never the case is almost never prosecuted. That's not what's at issue here. What's at issue here is whether he violated his oath of office. 
Right. Well, I mean, and and you know, there there is a there is a terrible overreach in the language of the of the impeachment uh, you know uh, charge, which is saying that he was singularly responsible for you know for the events of January sixth. Singularly is a bad word. That was a bad uh, adverb to attach because, of course, he is not singularly responsible. The people who committed the crimes are primarily responsible for the crimes. The question is, it's enough that he would be secondarily responsible or even tertiarily responsible because he shouldn't be responsible at all, is the point. Even assigning 5% of the responsibility to him or 2% of the responsibility to him would, under many conventional circumstances, be sufficient unto the day as a political matter to lead to his conviction. And for all kinds of reasons, including the very reasons that he got himself elected and that he is in this position today with a huge and passionate following, despite the fact that he lost an election, which usually causes people to kind of turn away and get angry at the person who wasted their vote, you know, which is what happened to George H.W. Bush when he lost after a term, certainly what happened to Jimmy Carter when he lost after a term. Um, the very conditions that mean that he he remains unshakably popular with a lot of the people who voted for him in the first place are in part where why it is that Republicans are going to find it impossible, or most of them find it impossible, to vote to convict him, even though I think we all agree that if the vote were uh, anonymous or whatever, I'm, I'm think, I can't think of the right word, right? What, what's the, you know, if, if the vote were a secret ballot, he would be convicted, you know, 90 to 10. You think they don't, all those people who were in the Capitol that day don't don't know that the person who said, you know, go down there and make a show of strength and Mike needs to do the right thing and all that, that they wouldn't want that guy punished? Well, that actually, I, the, the one thing that the, was shown in the video that I, they were chanting traitor Pence. So uh, Trader Pence, Trader Pence, like this idea that that's where the whole Trump cult of personality for me became crystal clear, because if, if it was about um, an administration and what, you know, what had been done to them incorrectly through voting, voter fraud, you know, all these claims that Trump made, they wouldn't instantly be encouraged as a violent mob to turn on the vice president who was actually in, you know, in the chamber at the time. But that that, that actually does did reveal to me more of the just how dangerous what Trump was doing uh, was, and he knew it. Like he, he was encouraging a very upset group of people who'd come to Washington with a grievance in mind to attack his own vice president. I mean, that, that to me, and Pence has gone obviously completely silent. He's not saying a word about any of this as, as he, which is probably wise for him politically, but that struck me as one of the moments in the video that I think probably a lot of Americans didn't realize how, just how, virulent the hatred of pence was on that day um it was just shocking to watch to to hear the chanting and to i was struck and i think noah you were struck too you 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 really you obsessively watched all of you know all of the footage that came out of the out of of january 6th but but a a lot lot. and i i watched a considerable amount of it what i was struck by by the by by the assemblage there was uh, the sheer sense of the overpowering nature of the crowd. I mean, ordinarily you get, as these things go along uh, and as time passes, uh, you get a little inured to these things because you've seen them over and over and over and over again. That was sort of why they wanted to suppress the footage after 9-11 of the, of the bodies jumping out of the trade center windows because you didn't want people to somehow start finding that normal or like having that as an image that that somehow became kind of part of the lingua the sort of the common popular culture because it was like too horrifying it needed to retain its capacity to shock and i was shocked watching the video by um, the madness of the crowd and the the virulent madness of the crowd and just the fact that, you know, it makes sense that a hundred Capitol policemen were injured. Like, it's amazing that more didn't get injured. They had blood in their eyes, those 
insurrectionists. They had murder in their eyes. And if you're a cop, you're not just the guy in the door whose head, whose body is being crushed in the door by the crowd that's attempting to breach the door. But all of them are standing there looking at people who want to kill them and then yeah. want to go off and kill other people. It's You don't see that very often, if ever. And there's a temptation if you've you know studied mobs and their mob psychology to um, explain, if not excuse, that behavior because in that in those conditions, a sort of reptilian instinctual um, brain takes over and you're just swept up in the crowd. But you know if you do watch all this footage or a lot of it, for example, ProPublica has this really great. Um, tool that helps you navigate the footage both around Washington, D.C. and outside the Capitol building and inside the Capitol building in real time. And I spent a couple hours perusing that. And um, one of the videos that I, I had not seen previously and I've never seen on, uh, on the, in the press is in the midst of the siege when the Capitol building was being um, stormed. There were at least one or two people outside the building who were delivering very impassioned sermons telling people to stop that you're acting like Antifa, that you, this is this is the kind of behavior that we expect from our adversaries. And this is this is antithetical to the kind of constitutional governance we're here trying to protect. You know, they're they're misled. They are they were um, misled uh, very deliberately by Donald Trump and by Republicans into believing they were defending the Constitution when they were not. But they nevertheless maintain a sentimental attachment to it and recognized what they were seeing was antithetical to the rule of law and that needed to stop. So it was capable to remove yourself from that. You were, you, the people had the capacity to remove themselves from that situation, uh, look 30,000 feet up and see that this was wrong. At the same time, though, there was also uh, a certain element among the insurrectionists. I saw this in some of the footage, um, not yesterday, but uh, some weeks back. Once they got into the chamber, um, there were um, sort of discussions or really kind of sort of shouting matches between the, the insurrectionists, some who were, you know, climbing the walls and others who um, were, and this is not exactly to their credit, saying, no, don't be destructive because we're here on a fact-finding mission. We're here, we're here to get information. They're, they're sifting through documents on the podium and taking pictures with their phones because they're there to try to prove um, with a paper trail that that um, a crime had taken place uh, regarding the election. Um, and that speaks to, by the way, the fact that they weren't all simply swept up in the mob mentality and in the moment. There was there was a sort of premeditated plan about this being some sort of, um, you know... Uh, Revolution. Uh, yes, yes, with, 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 with reconnaissance teams and, and whatever sure. else. Right. And establishing and getting yeah. the evidence for the case that they will make against the conspirators when the, when the revolution comes. That's exactly right. Right. And, and of course, this is going to be used in some fashion, my guess is, if they're at all competent, they will use this, the Trump team will use this, to exculpate him, to say, you see, there was a lot of four, there was four, four playing. The bombs were planted the, the night before. People, they, they had a plan. They were already starting to work while Trump was speaking. But this then goes back to the question of what the what the Democrats are going to talk about uh, for the for their uh, eight hours, which is uh, they will presumably start with how the Stop the Steal movement began and how Trump incepted the rally. I mean, which is the key moment here. It's Trump chose January sixth to say come to Washington on January sixth, the day that they are going to. Um, you know they're they're going to affirm the electoral college count to have a big moment to stop the steal um and therefore everything that was going to happen on or around January 6th was in fact again not singular responsibility not even necessarily secondary responsibility but Trump bore and bears some responsibility for the fact that all of these events coalesced around January 6th. If he hadn't well, been tweeting about it and calling for it and all of this, there would have been no rally and there would have been no breach of the Capitol and there would have Ashley Bennett would not have been shot. Uh, Officer Sicknick would not have died. The two uh, Capitol policemen would not have committed suicide and a hundred of them wouldn't have gone to the hospital. 
Well, even if you accept uh, the Trump argument that, you know, this was already in the works, you can't blame Trump, these people were, you know, doing this on their own initiative, he's still culpable as the nation's chief law enforcement officer, right? He's the one, his administration should have been monitoring any threats to the, to, uh, the, to Congress and to the uh, democratic process that was enacted there. So I think you're right, John, the fact that he was promoting a rally on the day that the vote was to be certified and, and that brought everyone to Washington in a fever pitch. I will say this, you know, we'd had a lot of, uh, you know, we had a Proud Boys rally in D.C. in December, which ended up only becoming violent when Antifa and Black Lives Matter kind of started tussling with them in the street after dark. It was it was under control because law enforcement was prepared. In this case, I think there was an assumption that it was going to be a similar kind of crowd. Um, but with Trump speaking, the, the numbers were much bigger. And I think the, the mood was much uh, different than what we'd just seen a month earlier here in D.C. If, if there was a flaw in the Democratic Party's or the Democratic House manager's initial case here, it was that they started the case, building the case against Donald Trump on the morning of January 6th, which was a, a mistake because it had been ongoing for several weeks. Um, most ominously, in, in my view, and the most uh, serious evidence of premeditation is a tweet from the evening before, 5.12 p.m. on the 5th, where he says, quote, I hope the Democrats and even more importantly, the weak and ineffective rhino section of the Republican Party are looking at the thousands of people pouring into D.C. They won't stand for a landslide election victory to be stolen. What he meant there is I'm going to use this crowd to threaten the Senate with a mob. I'm going to threaten the Senate with a mob to right. get what I want. But you're saying that remember, this was not the opening argument. What happened yeah. yesterday was the argument over the constitutionality of the proceeding. So it was a pre-opening argument, and now they're going to make an opening. They're not going to just say the same things over and over again. I think they are going to go, I don't know, we'll see, because we're, as we are recording this, it's, you know, two hours before the hearing is going to, uh, is, is going to start. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm projecting stuff that presumably a lot of you are, were already know. Uh, so maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. What I am right about uh, is that it is very important that you protect your data from big tech and your i and your uh, your your uh, your internet service provider because uh, big tech is trying to suppress your speech and your internet service provider is trying to collect the data on the sites that you visit so it can sell it to big tech and make money off it and. Why, so why are we choosing to give these big tech companies all of this information about us? The lines have been drawn. It's made it clear which side big tech is on. So now is the time to take a stance. you got to protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN I trust for my online protection express VPN. Look, every device, your phone, your laptop, your TV, there's a unique string of numbers. It's called your IP address. And when you search for stuff, watch videos, click a link. Big tech companies can use that IP address to track all your activity and tie it back to you. So when you use ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers so these companies can't see your IP address at all. My internet activity becomes anonymized. My network data is encrypted. And the best part is I really didn't need to be tech savvy at all to use ExpressVPN. I downloaded the app on my phone and on my computer, I tapped one button, I was protected. So stop handing over your data to big tech companies whose aim is to censor you and spy on you. Defend your rights and protect your internet activity with the VPN I use every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. Um. So moving on to the obsessive subject of uh, COVID America and the uh, and the general behavior of uh, a key Democratic interest group in uh, tormenting Americans for their own purposes. Um, yesterday, following a week of confusion after a newly installed CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said all the data suggests that it's not dangerous for teachers to be in schools teaching kids and we should reopen schools. Uh, where the response from the White House was, well, that's her personal opinion. She's the head of the CDC. Uh, and uh, that's not necessarily, we don't know. Uh, we're going to issue some guidance. So yesterday, 
the guidance from the White House came down and it was, we're going to labor to open 50% of the schools in America by March, at least one day a week. Um, By the way, I think uh, two-thirds of American schools are open at least one day a week right now. So that once again, the Biden administration is playing this fantastic expectations game where they are saying that they will consider a, a great mission accomplished to do what's already happening a month from now, and they can claim victory, sort of like the million shots a day in the arms. Which to do less than what's happening now. Right, to do less. Yeah, that would requ- to, to meet their goal, it would require closures. I don't know why you call it great, because the expectation-setting game they did with the vaccines was an embarrassment. It was a total flop. The president had to backtrack under pressure from reporters to say, there were several days where they were like, when is the president going to do something a little more ambitious here with these targets? And he finally eventually did. That that expect- expectation-setting game didn't preserve for them the opportunity to take a victory lap when they met that goal. It, it was an embarrassment that they had to back off of. Well, I don't know if it was an embarrassment. So so every time there are these moments where we start, uh, where we start pointing toward confrontation, um, d- Democratic politicians blink. So Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, said, oh, you know, here we go. We are going to fight. We are going to start firing teachers if they don't come back to school. And they made a deal, and it's one of these fake deals where the teachers can stay home, and you know they'll hire, you know they'll 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 pull in Jack Black from School of Rock to pretend to be a teacher in a classroom, uh, and and sit there while the teachers are 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 at home, you know, watching General Hospital on the other screen while they're <laughs> pretending to teach on their on on their on their screen. Yeah, this is actually there's there's two things here about what Biden is the Biden administration is attempting to message that that I find as a parent with kids in this situation first of all deeply insulting to our intelligence as as <laughs> Americans um but also extremely pernicious in terms of how they've been handling a broader covid response and how they've been messaging what is important about how we're handling the pandemic. So the first thing is that that you're right, Noah, that there have been schools are already doing a lot of these hybrid models. They're they're not super popular. Um, they are also not the, calling kids who sit in a classroom doing virtual learning in as being in school. One of my sons just started doing this this week. It's ridiculous. They do not have a live human being teaching them in the classroom. They're all sitting there with masks on, headphones on, doing their work virtually. And they call that coming back to school. It's not. It's That's not what going back to school means. It's not what most parents need when they talk about needing their kids to get back to school. And it does nothing to help the mental health and social challenges that America's kids are facing right now, after, some of us after a year of not having been in, in person school. And this idea that the, the teachers unions are somehow, you know, there was this incredibly revolting puff piece in, um, in the New York Times yesterday about Randy Weingarten, who's the head of one of the biggest teachers unions, where they're like, oh, all she cares about is the kids. She just wants to get kids back in the classroom. And look at how amazing she is trying to get these kids back in the classroom. No, she's not. So the, the way that the media is kind of running a cover for a lot of these messages is is appalling. But the, one of the good things about the way that the online world works now is that they're constantly being called out on it, certainly by journalists on the right, um, by commentators. And they that should continue. But more and more parents are calling them out, too. They're taking Wine to Twitter. Garden. Yeah. Weingarten demanded the other day a new standard at which point CDC guidance is currently that if uh, there are two unrelated COVID cases, you can't directly tie them together that are traced to a school and the building has to shut down, but it's shut down in cohorts. So you, you go to school in AB days. That's your cohort. Some kids go in A days, some kids go in B days. She wants them all to be lumped together, which would be a more onerous restriction than the one we have now. The metric that I follow that I don't think is really on a lot of people's radar isn't the days that are open for in-person education. It is going to 1 p.m as opposed to 3 p.m. At the start of this whole situation, what we were told was they had to do this because the workload was more onerous. They had to do this remote learnings thing, so they had to spend a lot more time in, in uh, doing administrative tasks, and that was what was necessary. No, also cleaning. Also, the and building, cleaning. there had to be cleaning. Lots well, of that cleaning. Was, no, well, now that was the evolution, because once they opened schools and it was necessary for cleaning, then we got a new logic here, at least in my district, which is that kids can't, you know, you're getting into lunchtime Mm -hmm. and kids can't be masked at lunchtime. They have to eat, right? 
So you can't have them eat there. They have to go home. Well, and in D.C. That is a recipe forever. Okay, for okay. Wait, one, okay. Other, one, one, one quick point to that. And in D.C., what the teachers unions have taken that they've taken that goalpost and said, if there's a single COVID case in, 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 in a single school, we have to shut it down for two weeks, 14 days of deep cleaning for the entire school, not the classroom, not 14 days. These kids Rational will never return. Changes. Yeah. Rational okay. changes. But the goal doesn't and the policy doesn't. So the policy okay. is the objective. The rationale is ancillary. Okay, let me talk about schooling where kids are in school, because that's my situation. I have three kids. There are two different schools. They're private schools. I pay more money than you can possibly imagine to educate my kids at these schools. I mean, honest to God. Uh, these schools determined that they were going to stay open, come hell or high water. As it happens, one of the schools, because of the size of the physical plant, the building, could not see, could not figure out a way to have from nursery through 12th grade to have everybody in school five days a week. There just wasn't enough space with six feet apart. So they determined that it was more important for the younger kids to be in school because, of course, there is no such thing as remote learning for a four-year-old or a five-year-old. And so from nursery, three years old, through fifth grade, which is the grade in which my my son's grade, they are in school five days a week. Sixth grade to twelfth grade, they're in school two days a week uh, on shifts. Uh, in part because it's a Jewish day school, so they're closed half the day on Friday anyway. Okay. My daughter's school, which is a girls' school, it has a larger physical plant with two buildings. Uh, they're in school five days a week. And what they do is uh, everybody is in a pod. And if somebody in or around the pod, which is like eight to 12 people, tests positive, uh, the pod is lifted out of the school. Everybody goes home for two weeks. Um, and, but everyone else, and they don't, you know, interact, they don't socialize with other kids in the pod, and everybody else uh, remains in school. Uh, this is a complicated and onerous system. There's a lot of testing. There's a lot of spitting into, into uh, PCR tubes. There's uh, nasal testing. There's pool testing. There's a lot of stuff going on. Why is this happening? Well, because at least, let, let me just take the case of my son's school. It's 30 years old. Uh, it's a it's a center of a community. Uh, I they not only are evangelically committed to the school's mission and purpose and all of that, but the school likely would not survive being shut down. Uh, people will do what is necessary if the school weren't a school and it wasn't open. Uh, they would find other. They would move. Uh, these are you know well-to-do people. They would move to their country house or move to Idaho or do whatever they had to do to get their kids into school because this is intolerable. This is a community that believes very deeply in education, particularly believes in Jewish education. Um, but, uh, you know, they're not, it, it wouldn't have stood. And this uh, remarkable uh, constructed experiment in a new form of parochial education would have died on the vine had they not moved heaven and earth to do this. And it's very hard and it's very taxing on the administration and the staff and the headmaster sleeps three hours a night. And, you know, it's but that's one. And the the other school, which is 140 years old and is one of the most august private uh, second you know schools of learning in, in the United States, uh, they determined to stay open because that's what they are. That's if they can, they should. And there are other private schools in New York City. Uh, that basically screwed the pooch and were like, ah, we don't know how to do this, so we're just not even going to try. And there are lawsuits. There are people being pulled out of these schools all over the place. And all of this, by the way, in both places and everywhere else is happening, along with the mishigas and uh, madness of the of the uh, woke curricula changes and reforms that are going on. So not only are kids at home... Or there is, but there are also, you know, brain new brainwashing techniques are being devised uh, to make sure that they think the right ways and do the right things while they're not even, uh, where they're not even capable 
of 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 uh, focusing on on screens. My own kids, who have been very intermittently having to be home uh, on screens, and because after after the Christmas vacation, it was decided they would stay home for two weeks as a kind of implicit quarantine. And you know, if someone does test positive, as was the case in my son's pod, and he had to stay home and all that. You know, uh, Christine, uh, Noah, like your kids have been doing this now for a year. Like they can barely focus. It's really, really hard. Just two days, two days of it. So wh- why why am I telling this long, drawn out story? I'm saying that where there is a will, there is a way. If these, if these educators, administrators, politicians, and union officials wanted school to be open, it would be open. And I can tell you that because my schools are open. And you know why? Because I pay and I pay through the nose for it. But I also, as a result of this, you get what you pay for. And some places are not like this. And God only knows what these very expensive schools are going to look like when they come back next year. Because they have failed their students. And I can say they failed them because my schools have not failed my kids. And your schools, private schools in New York City who don't open, or the schools in my, you are they are failing their kids because they have not, because there is this literal evidence that you can do it if you can. And that's all you can expect anybody to do. I mean, there is a um, nascent, but nevertheless observable um, movement at the state level in now legislative forms. I can think of two states off the top of my head. There's probably more I haven't uh, investigated it, but a movement to tether um, education funding through that you pay through your property taxes to individuals and to students to go where you want to go. And man, I would be surprised if that doesn't pick up a lot of steam over the course of the next year, especially if we're still talking about this into 2022, because according to the Associated Press, um, that's what people are preparing for in the fall. The 2021-22 season will be remote in a lot of places, particularly urban places. And the logic I heard for it is we're very unlikely to eradicate the disease. Like it's smallpox. It's, it's never going to be eradicated. That was never the option. I mean, we haven't eradicated polio. It's not going to happen. So the notion here that you can't live with this thing until it ceases to exist is the new logic. And you know, again, we keep predicting revolts and revolts never materialize. There's a level of complacency here that is profoundly disturbing. But a legislative effort to tether your tax dollars to the education your kids receive makes imminent sense and is uh, has a level of urgency now that it didn't have before. Right. Well, I want to get I want to get back to this, but first, let me talk to you guys about uh, Upstart, today's second sponsor. Um, so. Guys, you know, credit card debt, it's nightmarish, suffer from it, got high interest, it's burying you under. Look, you want it, you don't look at your balance, you know it's going to look bad, and particularly after the last year, these are kind of the kind of surprises and pains that we really don't want to go through. So look, if you have multiple credit cards, you know that tracking those balances, due dates, and website logins can be stressful. Upstart makes things simple. With one monthly payment in one place, it's the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt all online, whether it's paying off credit cards or consolidating high-interest debt or funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. You can get approved the same day and can receive funds as fast as one business day. If debt is taking over your life, it's time to get a fresh start with Upstart. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash commentary. That's upstart.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application Go to upstart.com slash commentary. Christine, I want you were about to say something, but I want to ask you a question in this regard, which is after the, the fact that there are no revolts, the fact that all this is happening with this complacency that Noah is talking about, the fact that we've now gone, you know, it will be, we're getting close to a year uh, into this uh, pandemic. Um, what if the story is not just that the teachers unions don't care about school? 
what if the true story is that there are tens of millions of parents in the United States who don't care about school and don't care whether their kids go to school? Isn't don't at some point don't we have to start taking? Uh, we pay all sorts of lip service and heed to the fact that parents want what's best for their kids and will do anything for their kids. But we know that's not true. We know parents who are neglectful. We know parents who, you know, basically are just sort of going along to get along, whatever. What if they don't care whether their kids go to school? Well, I think, I mean, saying they don't care is, is a strong way of putting it, but we have evidence already through survey data of parents with school-aged children who've been asked, you know, what, is going back to school in per- person important to you or are you more worried and fearful of COVID? Parents who have a college education are more likely to want to send their kids back to school um, because uh, the assumption being that they've actually read a little more, they're a little more informed about the risk. Parents without a college education are f- more fearful and will keep their kids at home, um, even when they're presented with evidence that that's harming their kid. Like literally, your kid is falling behind. The fear outweighs the sort of future impact of that lack of uh, educating going on. So I think there's a. It's funny because there's a there's a parallel in some sense to all the discussion of vaccine hesitancy, right? There's it, it breaks out by race and education. It breaks out, you know, socioeconomically in many ways, and that's not to say that the fear shouldn't be understood as as rational in that person's experience. But we have done. This is where I go back to my rant earlier about the messaging of the Biden administration about this. They are encouraging that fear with the way they're talking about in-person learning. They are not discussing how it can be done safely. They are not holding up examples of that. They are allowing the teachers' unions to control the messaging, which is all about the risk to teachers. They don't. They don't want to talk about what the the obvious uh, damage that's already been done to kids. So, I think there are plenty of parents who don't really think school's all that necessary, who probably, if they didn't go to college themselves, maybe don't think their kids need to go to college. And and yeah, you know, maybe they had a terrible experience in school. And, you know, as we know from some of the activists, it's the, you know, school is basically the school to prison pipeline. Like there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of animosity about schooling um, that I think has been, u- has been used in this situation to justify in some parents' minds, oh, my kid's going to be fine. I don't want to, they want my kid to die. They want to send my kid back to school and my kid's going to die or the kid's going to bring the virus home and kill me and they don't care about me. It's the lack of concern they feel these institutions and leaders have for them that is what's disturbing to me. Because we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but the parents I've talked to who don't want to send their kids back, who are African-American and not college educated, have told me, like, they don't care about me and my kid. That's how they feel. And when I say, well, the unions don't care about you either, they say, well, you know what? The unions at least are pushing back on the ones who want us all to get killed. That's the dynamic they're experiencing. And I understand that. I think it's actively harmful for their kids, but. <laughs> See, I think there's a weird, uh, there's a weird connection here, uh, you know, not, not ideologically, but sociologically uh, in, in the nature of the anti-institutional, anti-governmental, anti, you know, elite message here, I mean, Tucker Carlson went on a rant last night about how it was a kind of I don't, anti 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 vaxxer rant is the only way I, I I can put it. It was disgraceful and shameful and horrifying um, uh, because he knows better, and certainly his kids he will get vaccinated as soon as possible, and so will everybody. He else. said as much. Yeah, I know. He he said as much in that monologue, but right. I think they're fine, but and what, I'm going to get it. But what he says is they don't care about you. 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 This is the ultimate message uh, of the uh, anti-institutional moment or the anti-institutional front that that connects everybody. It's this idea that there there are faceless people in charge of our lives who don't care about you. And uh, on the right, it's a certain it's a certain type of people who don't care about you or hate you. And on the left, it's a certain type of people who don't care about you or hate you. And uh, as a result, we cover the waterfront in having people who don't care about us or hate. There's nobody who doesn't. There's nobody that we can agree, maybe with the exception of the U.S. military, that cares about anybody or is good for anybody. As far as I can tell, nobody cares about you. Nobody likes you. Nobody is good for you. If, if you think that somebody's good for you, there's always going to be somebody on the other side who thinks they're bad. 
But this and does one one. There's a step that came before that that's important to acknowledge, which is the 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 habit of mind that allowed so many Americans to believe that their government should quote unquote care about them rather than perform a service for them. Those are two different things, right? And the the decline of sort of religious faith and community has played into this mindset that, well, the, at least the government was going to send me a check and educate my kids. And that this is, they, they care about me because they're showing me in this way. When that break down, breaks down and when the pandemic blew it all <laughs> up, then suddenly the one, the institutions that they, that had replaced for them, the, the sort of the, the secular faith that had arisen around what government should be doing for people collapsed. It, it's also profoundly insulting. It's so condescending it, to bring it back a little bit to impeachment because this is a very similar argument. I saw Marco Rubio make this argument and I'm just t- picking on somebody, this Twitter celebrity named Tim Poole, who articulates it um, pretty well. Um, what's the point of the impeachment trial? He's going to be acquitted. They're just wasting our time and our money instead of getting people COVID relief to people. Now, the assumption there is that you're an idiot. You're just too dumb to understand or care about the weighty historical precedents, legal uh, precedents, and prudence as a Republican sentiment. You can't, you're just too dumb to know about any of that. And I'm not going to bother educating you because they just adopt this false Joe Lunchpail, meat and potatoes, every man kind of argument. And it is BS. It's Marco Rubio cares about historical precedent. He's an educated guy. He understands what happened to the Roman Republic in the English Civil War. He gets the precedent at, at play here. He just thinks maybe you don't. It's profoundly condescending and insulting. Abe, you got uh, got anything for me? Uh, no, I, don't know. I find myself in um, sort of you know across the board agreement here. So, so. Uh... So be of good cheer, everyone. We're everything's going just great, is what we're saying. Uh, we're never going to get out of COVID. No one's ever going to be held responsible for any, for anything fairly. Nobody cares about you. Everything is terrible. That that's kind of where we are. I mean, I, my ultimately, I think the whole point about vaccines or science, if we're going to talk about you know trusting, is that none of this is about caring about you. We're not caring about you. A vaccine is a is a is something that you um, you introduce into your body. I, Go ahead. I, I do have a thought about this. Um, I think this all contributes to one of the most regrettable, um, dispiriting lessons that of, of the pandemic, which is that, well, <clears throat> since no one cares, and since we can't expect anyone to care, um, why should we care? And it's okay, and this gets to the schooling issue, it's okay if we just hobble along. That's the best we can do. That's the best that anything is, that's the best that's going to come of any of this. Forget sort of grand aspirations connected to your country and uh, your futures and whatever else. If we can just hobble along, look, this thing has killed a lot of people. We're, we're alive at least. So we're not in school. So our kids aren't, aren't in school. So we don't have this. We don't have that. But we can just—it's okay. We got—we got checks coming. We'll just—we'll just hobble along. That's okay, and that is a very, very depressing aspect of this. Um, The—it's the, the, why we keep failing to see this revolt in one shape or form materialize. It's—it's—it's um, it's, it's become perfectly okay to sort of limp toward some vague. Maybe new normal, never new normal state of who knows what. You know, you you as you were speaking, you reminded me of a of a poem by by Philip Larkin, which is not really entirely apposite to this moment, because uh, it's 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 really it's it's really about the decline and end of 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 the centrality and the uh, of of not only the British Empire but of Great Britain altogether as a as a major player in world history a poem called homage to a government let me just read a couple of lines from it next year we are to bring all the soldiers home for lack of money and it is all right places they guarded or kept orderly we want the money for ourselves at home instead of working and this is all right it's hard to say who wanted it to happen but now it's been decided nobody minds the places are a long way off, not here, which is all right, and from what we hear, the soldiers there only made trouble happen. Next year, we shall be easier in our minds. Next year, we shall be living in a country that brought its soldiers home for lack of money. The statues will be standing in the same tree-muffled squares and look nearly the same. 
Our children will not know it's a different country. All we can hope is to leave, all we can hope to leave them now is money. So that's the country that limps along. And that was 1969. I think that poem was written. And his prophecy that that's what would essentially become of Great Britain was kind of interrupted for a while uh, by the Thatcher interregnum. But then, you know, that's basically where where England is now. If we hobble along, we will no longer be the major force for greatness and possibility and opportunity and all of that that we have been for 240 years. And that's what we're staring down the ballot. So, um, uh, uh, Bruce Castor, I think it was Bruce Castor, uh, ended yesterday by uh, sobbing while reading one of the worst American poems by by Longfellow. So uh, I didn't sob here, but I, you know, I think it's a little better to end with Philip Larkin. So we'll we'll stop there and uh, gather again tomorrow for Christine, Noah, and Abe. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>